Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. As always, I appreciate you tuning into the podcast. We've created a questionnaire to better understand you, the listener, and what it is that keeps you coming back to listen to the podcast. We want to know what's working for you and what you want more or less of. Please take a few minutes to head over to bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast. That's bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast to fill this out. Your support is greatly appreciated. We have another amazing guest on the podcast today. I had the honor of working with our guest, Joe DiNardo, when he released his first book, A Letter to My Wife. He's the kindest man, and I am so thrilled to have him share a story about his health, as well as his experience as a caregiver to his wife, Marsha. Welcome, Joe. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you live, and what you do. Well, I am an attorney by training. I am a long-time Vipassana meditator by passion. That's my passion in life. I live in Buffalo, New York. I have a son who is uh, on his own. He's 20, almost 29 years old. Uh, he's a full-time graduate student. And I have a, um, a special needs daughter who is at home with me. She's 18 years old. And as you know, Harper, uh, my wife was diagnosed at age 52 uh, three years ago with I'm sorry, five years ago with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, I was told she had no more than six months to live, but she lived for two years. And uh, she passed away just three years ago. Uh, it'll be four years this uh, next March. And it's been a little real challenge. It was a challenge all during that time, but uh, it's been a challenge, you know, dealing with being alone and being with my daughter. Uh, one, because she's 18 and going through all the things that women go through, young women go through at that age. She also has you know, significant challenges of her own. Um, and it's not always, it's not easy for a man to meet those, to help her with all of those. I have some, we have the village, you know, that, that, that Marsha had built around her with her, with Anselm, but still it's her and I in the house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, it's taken, it pushes you to your limit sometimes. Yeah, understandable. But I know you're good to her. Yeah. And she loves you. So let's talk a little bit about your health first. What was it like to learn that you were living with a brain tumor for almost two decades? Well, when I was in law school, and uh, when I was a an attorney, a young attorney, I periodically battled with what we all thought severe migraine headaches to the point where I was in the emergency room once, maybe twice a year. Uh, and I pretty have a high tolerance for pain. So these were, you know, on those occasions, you know, I was fairly delirious and, you know, crawling on the floor and, you know, had to call 911 and so on. Um, and I thought I had a great neurologist um, and she treated me with, you know, medications. And every time I had one of these significant events, you know, the protocol is you go, they, they say, you die. I tell them I'm being treated for migraines. They hydrate you. They give you an IV with, you know, morphine or some other, you know, powerful pain medication. And within five minutes, 10 minutes, 
you're in La La Land and, uh, you know, you're okay. And they send you home an hour later. That's the protocol for treating a migraine headache in an emergency room. And that was it. Um, and then in 2005, Marsha and I had been married for about five years, and but we had been together for about 15 years. And we returned from a two-week trip to Italy. Juliana came with us. She was five years old. And my son also came with us. He's from prior marriage. I, I like to exercise quite a bit. I didn't get to do that very much on the trip. So we got home Saturday afternoon, late in the day, and, and come Sunday morning, I thought, you know, I had a little gym in the basement, and I just said, you know, I'm going to go downstairs and do light exercising with weights and some cardio, just to sort of get back into it. And I went downstairs, and fortunately, my son also came down to the gym and was just sort of playing around or was in the other room. I forget what he was doing. Anyways, I was um, using doing a bench press with with not a lot, a lot of significant weight for, for what I normally do. And all of a sudden, my head just exploded. I mean, I had never had that kind of an experience. Most of my migraine, the severe ones, you, you led up to it. You could tell it was coming. You knew it was coming. You tried to then ameliorate it in some way. How could you tell? What was that feeling? Well, you began to get, you know, light sensitive to your eyes. You began to get, you know, sort of a... a, a I could tell when I was, you know, I couldn't focus anymore. You begin to get, you know, not pain, but some sort of a discomfort in your head. Um, but then it would get, your muscles would get tight, your head would get constricted. That's how I felt. So, my, I just, this, this was like different. I've never had this experience. And I uh, almost, uh, I fell off the, the bench. Uh, I couldn't, I, was, I couldn't hardly stand up or walk. My son came running in. What's the matter, Dad? I, had, you know, I grabbed him to hold, and uh, I was just in such pain. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't even talk. Uh, he got me upstairs, and Marsha, you know, she was like, oh, my goodness. So I didn't I didn't want to go to the hospital. I just thought it was related to the, the trip and the, the jet lag and all those things combined into one, and then the exercising. And I said, just get me to the bed. You know, I'm going to take four or five Advil. That's all I had. And uh, I don't like taking pain medication, so I didn't have any. And I put a pillow over my head to block up the light and whatever. And just, if I could just fall asleep, and, you know, whatever. I wish I did. I sort of just passed out. I woke up like two hours, three hours later. I was woozy, but the, the pain was manageable. Went to bed later that night. I never felt well. I wasn't in any significant pain. I was at the office the next morning, about 9 o'clock, having a conversation. And my head exploded again. Just out of the blue, just exploded. Again, I almost fell over. So anyways, a, one of the, a retired judge that worked for me in my company, he says, I'm taking you right to uh, Miller Fillmore, which is the hospital uh, out in the suburbs uh, where, we, where our office was. And he was on the board of directors of that hospital. I would have gone there anyways, but so he drove me there. And um, we get there, and they knew I was coming, and they had a wheelchair and brought me in. And I was really, I was in pain. And, uh, you know, the doctor, when they get what's up, I said, I said, I've been treating for headaches. My doctor is doctor so-and-so. 
I've been treated for migraines for like 20 years, 25 years. Okay, they IV, pain, thin skin, laying on the gurney. All the things that you had been used to from yeah. prior migraines. Typical protocol. And that pain medication they give you is enough to knock anything off. Okay? And they lay you down, and within, you know, 20 minutes or so, you're like, <laughs> okay, you're high, basically high, and you don't feel anything. So uh, my wife shows up at the hospital, the emergency room, and my brother shows up. And the judge is standing there. He stays, he stays with me, and he says to the doctor, don't you think you should have a CAT scan? And the doctor says, have you ever had a CAT scan? I said, no. The doctor said, Judge, that's not the protocol. We don't give CAT scans. You know, we don't give MRIs and CAT scans. But this is what we do. We're at migraines. The judge says, I really think you should have a CAT scan. And so they got into a debate. The judge says, if, if I need to, I'll make a phone call. The doctor says, I, can't, I cannot order a CAT scan for someone who has a migraine. The judge says, I'll be right back. Goes to make some phone calls. <laughs> Next thing you know, someone says, phone call for Dr. So-and-so. Doctor said, "We're giving you a scan." It's amazing that they were going to deny you of that. Yeah, I was very lucky that the judge was there, and you know they, they take me to me. So by this time now, I come back from the cat scan, which doesn't take long. And uh, my cousin Richard was there, and so my brother Amy. So I have like my, my family's there, and I'm laying on the ground. I feel good because I'm high. Okay? And the doc, this doctor walks over and he says, "Well, here's your problem, Joe." He says, you have a tumor, a large tumor, on the right side of your head. He goes, but the real problem is, and he shows it to us. You can see it. And he says, the real problem is, it's spiraling into the base of your skull. He said, and that is a very, very elegant area. He goes, you have very little space in there for all the blood vessels and, and, and some very intricate areas. That's where your hearing comes through and your speech and your breathing eyesight, all those nerves are in there. And when you exercised, you dilated those blood veins. They took up more space than there was, and that's what caused what we call a thunderclap headache. That's what you had, a thunder. And I said, wow, what a perfect, that's exactly what it is. He said, uh, well, you, you, this is serious. He says, it does not look cancerous. They can tell. He says, we don't know. I don't, couldn't tell you for sure. But he said, it doesn't look cancerous. I'm not worried about that. But he says, you need to see a neurosurgeon today. I go, really? He goes, really? He says, I'm not letting you out. He said, I'm getting in an ambulance. And you just tell me where you want to go. So we have um, done a lot with Roswell Cancer Institute in Buffalo. Uh, it's a wonderful, beautiful place. Um, and I thought, you know, who better to deal with a tumor in your head, you know, than Roswell, than whether it's cancerous or not. And uh, so I, I said, I'll go there. And of course, they would take me, which they did. And um, this is all the same day. Yeah, all within, all within a couple of hours. He was pretty serious about it. Were you taking it seriously? I was high as a kite. <laughs> it was, I mean, it, re it was registering on the face of my wife and my brother and everybody else but much you were more, somewhere else much more than it was me yeah i was like just sort of like oozing along here uh because you know they had given me such powerful uh, 
intravenous medication, which I don't take a lot of pain medication, so it was really working. Anyways, over the next day, they, before they could do the surgery, they had to give you a, a, a series of catabolic steroids, which are designed to reduce the swelling of the tumor and the and whatever it was that was going on in the base of the skull before they would do the surgery. And they felt they had to do the surgery because there was like a 5% chance there might be cancer in there. But because they also agreed that the base of the skull stuff was dangerous. Um, but they said they didn't know what the consistency of the tumor was. They can be like rock solid, like a ball, or they can be mushy, all tangled up in the nerves and the, and the arteries and the blood vessels, or something in between all of that. Until they go in, they just can't tell. But it was going to be a week before they did the surgery. But the surgeon said, you know, do I have to you know, tell you that, we, you know, every, every surgery, there's always the risk of, you know, death, even, even in the most minor surgeries. And they say that. The reality is, in most surgeries, there's not. Usually it's a 1% or less than 1% chance, but they have to say it yes. just to cover their bases. Right. But these doctors knew me, you know. He says, I have to tell you, um, there's a greater risk. Because of where this tumor is, and the fact that it's, it's spiraled into the base of your skull, um, I do a lot of these base of the skull surgeries, so I know what I'm doing. But it's dangerous. So I'm just telling you that you could come out of this blind. You could come out of this death. You could not come out of this. So now I had been meditating since 1974 this and is, this now is 2005. 2005 that's like almost 30 years maybe 31 years but and and part of the practice any serious meditation practice is the practice of recognizing and mindfully contemplating your own death and i had done that as a practice as mindfully as i could over the course of time but I said to myself, wow, I had never actually confronted my own mortality where there was a chance that I was going to go under anesthesia and never come out of it. And I, the thought I had was at that last moment, are you going to hedge your bets? And besides following your breath, are you going to say a little prayer? Are you going to ask God, hey, if you're really there, think of me, you know, watch over, whatever. Uh, as opposed to simply staying in the moment, seeing what arises, and looking at it as almost with the, with the mindset of it, it's an adventure. What is the next moment going to bring? Whatever that, whatever that is. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I mean, I said, I don't know. Uh, because I'd never been in that position before. So uh, over the next you know, five or six days, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time alone, sitting with that and letting all of that, that sense of like, what am I going to do? Just sort of be there with it and sink in. I didn't want to, I didn't want to think it through. I just wanted that question 
to be there. And let's see what I, what sort of thoughts kept coming up, and I would let them go. But and uh, so that that uh, morning, um, when they took me down, I just stayed following my breath and, and watching myself, and uh, until the last moment that they, they I went out. Okay. So the funny thing is, you go out, your anesthesia, anesthesia. You, know, you can meditate all you want. Yeah, those definitely. Knock so you out for sure. The next thing I remember, okay, is I, I open my eyes and the doctor is I'm in bed and the doctor is leaning over the bed looking at me. And like the hero that I am, I say to him, I'm ready. He goes, Joe, what are you ready for? I said, the surgery. He goes, You're in recovery. Oh it's, it's, it's over with. I go, it is? No, I went. The first thing I did was I wiggled my fingers. This is real. This is not a dream. Yeah, I said, "How do I look?" Because my I thought my face could droop. That that could also happen. I said, "How do I look?" He said, "You look great." So I, you know, so I wasn't blind, and I could hear him. Of course, it was pretty close, but I did have some sequelae from from the the surgery, but none of the horrific things that that could have. That, that, that could have occurred. And of course, I didn't die. And, but I came out of it so strengthened my already strong uh, sense of the practice, the meditation practice, the, the, the simple practice of focus, concentration, trying to stay in the moment, but really of trying to learning to let things go on their own. That's the practice. And what that does is, is that in your quote-unquote normal life, it gives you that freedom to not be so attached to or rejecting of everything that comes up. That was a powerful experience for me. Um, that quote, you know, that experience of my own mortality. Uh, and it, it was a, a life-altering experience. And anybody who has had any type of brain surgery, I think will tell you, brain surgery is life-altering. It just is. You never come out of it exactly the same. And I didn't come out of it the same. What changed? Well, that, I don't know. It's hard to put a finger on it. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. And I, I mentioned to the doctor about the sense of strangeness of not being the same but not being able to articulate exactly how. And he said, that he, this is what he does. He operates on people and then he talks to them afterwards. So he hears it from all of his people. Do the migraines continue after that or do they go away? I have never had so much as one iota of pain again. And guess what? They didn't remove the tumor. What do you mean? They only removed about... 10 or 15 percent of it because it was one of those gooey tumors that was so enmeshed in the arteries and the, the veins and the, and the nerves that if they had tried to take too much of it it would have, I would have lost yeah. my hair so they the I told them the night before when they came in and tell you I said I've been thinking about this fellas if you get in there tomorrow and you find that in order to get rid of the tumor, you have to yank and pull, and I said, stop. I'd rather die with this thing 
that from this I said so just I don't I, I don't want that I don't want to come out of this thing blind or whatever they said okay if that's what you're telling us we'll stop and they did right um, and I respect them for that I think that because they because surgeons love to do surgery you know but uh, they they didn't um, one thing that that did happen there's a nerve that comes up your neck and uh, on both sides of your neck it's called the trigeminal nerve right by your ears and it comes to your face and splits into three on each side of your face and that's why it's called the trigeminal nerve it enervates your entire face and head okay and it splits your head right down the middle well they damaged mine on the right side they didn't fortunately cut it or anything but they damaged it and i am left with constant shooting pain 24 7 my face my eyes I feel like, feels like needles being pushed in there all the time and also my cheeks for instance are super sensitive the first time i picked up my daughter and her, just a wisp of her hair touched my cheek almost jumped out of my skin like i could that that light a touch unless i know that you're going to touch me like if i'm getting a haircut you know, I have to say to myself, okay, she's going to touch me too. And then it's not so bad. And that's still the case? Huh? And that's still the case? Oh, yeah. So we, we, we searched around for, um, you know, a couple of years for something that would help ameliorate the pain or at least make it manageable. Because the, the neurologist said, you know, Joe, this, this is a difficult nerve because we can't do anything with it. So this is not, not a nerve that we can really play around with. But he finally got me on something called Lyrica, which is a pain medication that they give to diabetics when they get the tingling of nerves in their hands and all. And it actually, it melts it a little bit. And unfortunately, but I take a lot of it to even get a little relief. And that's not a great thing. So I've got to sort of be careful what I do with it. So again, the meditation practice has been an enormous, enormous help for me because I look at the pain and I, I laugh. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm in the middle of a lecture, for instance, giving a lecture, which I do, I lecture to um, various lawyer groups. <clears throat> or if I'm teaching a meditation class, I'll be talking to them. I will get a stab in the eye. You, you would think that someone was standing there with a long needle and poked you right in the eye. <laughs> Just laugh. You, you could feel that you were the victim. Like, oh, why? It was me, you know. I laugh and say, wow, what a great object for focusing my attention. Like, you know, that wakes you right up. Like, I'm right in the moment. You can't, right? And I look at it as more of an opportunity to just, you know, stay with the pain and see it as pain, but not add to it with drama. You know, by adding, you know, the Joe DiNardo drama to it, the storyline, why me, how did this you know, what did I do? It's not fair that this is happening. Um, and and it's, the pain is, is, is so constant that that's all I would be doing. You know, so I said, this is, that would not work for, for much of having a good life. So, I mean, it's just there. And um, I really don't, you know, how I, I guess the way I say it is this. I would, it would be wrong to say that I don't experience the pain. I just feel I don't suffer with it. That's valuable. Yeah. That's something. Yeah, that's something. Not suffering is definitely a good thing. Yeah. So 
now that it's been over like 13 years since you had that surgery, right? 2005. Um, how do you think about your own mortality now? I say this with this cautionary thing. I say it because I really believe it, but I know that enough about being human that you never know until you actually have to deal with it, okay? I don't really fear death. I don't. I look at it as it will be just the next thing. I have no idea and no concept of what will happen. Yeah, and I'm sure that the meditation practice that you have keeps you really present and grounded to your current life as opposed to thinking about what could and should and may happen down the road. So let's talk a little bit about Marsha. And I wonder how your own health scare, did it impact or inform how you thought about your role as a caregiver when she was diagnosed? Briefly, first about Marsha. We both came from the same Italian cultures. So we, we shared a lot of commonality in that regard, families and cultural things. And Italy, your love of Italy. I loved it. She loved Italy. I loved Italy, you know. And Juliana, who's now, she's always like say, I've been to Italy, you know, six times, seven times. What kid gets to do that? But we just loved going there. Um, but Marsha was a unique human being. She was, first, she was beautiful. And we had a very passionate love affair and a great friendship. And uh, I think that our friends enjoyed being with us because we never made fun of our friends or we made fun of each other, but never like sniping. You know what I'm saying? We would tell stories and make jokes and then she would cut me off saying, oh, no, 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 this is what, you know. And I did not regret one day that we were married. Not a day. At that moment when they said the words, stage four pancreatic cancer, I knew what that diagnosis meant. I had the immediate experience. It was like almost out of body. On the one hand, you know, I was like fearful and afraid for her and what she was going to have to go through. And at the same moment, I was awash in this unconditional sense of love for her. Unconditional. I mean, it didn't matter to me whether she loved me or not. I loved her that moment and I was going to be with her as a care, caretaker, caregiver, no matter what, every moment that she needed me and wanted me. First, that's the most important thing. Every moment that she needed me, not that I needed to be there. And I think that's the first thing that the meditation practice had helped in developing for me is the sense that of listening to the other person. In this case, my wife, who now was facing her own mortality. And caretakers need to understand it's the other person that's dying, not them. Now, they're suffering their own suffering. I get that. But what the person with the diagnosis is going through is completely different. And I just sensed that right away, that this was going to be, for me, you know, a challenge and an opportunity to be there for her, to listen to her, even in silence. In other words, she's not going to say the words. She's not a complainer. She was not a complainer, so she wasn't going to start complaining. And she never liked being the victim, um, and she wasn't going to start that now. So I had to be very sensitive, 
there were going to be times that she wanted to talk to her sisters instead of me. And I, I needed to not take that like as a personal thing. You know, why aren't you talking to me? I'm your husband. Sort of thing. Were there times where you felt that way? No, I didn't. But I said I could have. I mean, all this came into my head. Like, but in that moment, I just said, I, this is going to be, un I felt unconditional love and compassion for her. I don't know. I didn't try to feel that way. It just, just arose in me. And I was happy that I had that experience. I wasn't happy when I was thinking about what she was going to go through and what we were going to go through and our family was going to go through. And, you know, then the process began. And this is a very difficult one for anybody going through, you know, treatment, cancer treatment, chemotherapy. Uh, but pancreatic cancer is particularly savage. How did you tell Juliana? I think that Aaron, who was our nanny for many, many, many years, uh, and Haley, her daughter, who's like a, a second daughter to me and to Marsha, and a sister to Juliana, we got them together because Juliana is intellectually challenged. She doesn't process things so well, but she follows Haley's lead a lot of times. So I thought it was best to talk to her about this with Haley there and with Aaron there because Aaron would be the, the female soft place for her. So we had the conversation with the, the four of us about, you know, this is, mommy's been diagnosed with cancer. It's going to be, she's going to be very sick for some periods of time. Uh, and, you know, she's not going to be, some she's going to be around sometimes, sometimes she's not going to be able to do things because she just doesn't feel good and we have to give her space. And other times she'll be around. Uh, and, and we just don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be hard times now. They were sad. Haley got, I mean, she's smart. Haley, Haley was, a very, was, a very, was a very smart 13-year-old. But, you know, I think Juliana, looking at Haley and seeing how Haley responded, realized, oh, my, this is something serious is happening here. So that's how we did it. That's intense. Yeah, it was very It's got to be really intense. Yeah. So when you think back on your experience as a caregiver for two years, three years? Two. Two years. What moments or emotions stand out to you the most? I'm sure there's many. One particular experience and conversation after this was in uh, Marsha's second chemo, uh, which they usually took about three or four hours doing chemo. So I walked into the hallway with her oncologist, uh, Renuka Ayer, wonderful one. I call her my ocean of compassion. Just the sweetest lady. We went out in the hall. I didn't know her very well at the time. Um, and I, uh, my partner, Chris Dimanis, was uh, with me. And I said to her, you know, what am I dealing with here? And, uh, I mean, I just didn't know exactly from a medical standpoint. I mean, I need to know for myself, and I need to know for my family. What do I tell them? Her family, they'd lost their father to pancreatic cancer a bunch of years before. And they didn't deal with it very well. I was around them, and they were in complete denial until like an hour before he died. So I felt we can't let them do this with, not again. She said, well, Joe, she said, um, with this diagnosis, uh, if she makes it for six months, that would be good. That would be good. And that would be typical. Not typical, but up to six months would be good. If she made it a year, that would be unusual what people do. Anything after that would 
steer on some other. We don't just model the statistics to vote that. But, so I'm thinking to myself, oh, wow, we're looking at six months or less. And that often is the case, three months, four months, and they're just gone. It takes people that fast. And, of course, as time marched on, Marsha didn't collapse. And then she continued soldiering on. And she was good in between chemotherapies. And when we finished the first round of chemo, and of course, once you stop taking the chemo, that's what makes you sick. Uh, she was like fairly okay. Um, still, I mean, the cancerous does make you sick in and of itself. Um, but uh, it was a difficult, difficult to see her go through it. She's losing weight all along, lost her hair. Tough for a woman, for anybody, but for a woman in particular. But she, she never complained to me. She got a wig. She was happy to get her wig, you know. Um, I said, you look better without the wig. I, mean, you know, I liked her. I, I, liked, I liked short hair. And uh, so then she stopped wearing a wig. Then Renupa said to me after about a year, I asked her again. I said, Renupa, <clears throat> how do we explain what's happening here? And by that time, we were friends. And she had come to love Marsha a great deal. And we had spent a lot of time together, so we, I knew her quite well by then. And I said, so what am I dealing with now? She said, Joe, I'm going to tell you. Oh, I know. On the first, you asked me what events I remember. So going back to the conversation, she, she was sensing that perhaps I was going to go back to Marsha and say, you, you may have only six months. But you wanted to know this for you and for your family, her family. Well, no, but she thought I was also going to say that. And I was. And one of the things is, you know, you know how you read, you have to be, you have to talk about death and so on. And you do. When someone is dying, they sort of know it. Okay. And you don't have to bludgeon them over the head. They'll talk about it if they want to. So she said, Joe, it's not your job as her caretaker to take away her hope. All she has left is her hope. And if you take that away, she has nothing. So don't take it away. She knows what's happening. Do you think that she doesn't understand why she's having chemo? So I don't think it's your job to tell her, unless she asks you, what did Runuka say? If that's the question. Okay. So it's interesting uh, how Marsha did this. We, she never asked me, and I never said to her. Then, toward the end of the two years, she insisted, she was like almost a skeleton, but she insisted on taking the annual Florida vacation with the big family. We all got a big house together, all of us kids. She, she could, I mean, she was like really sick, but she was off the chemo, and uh, they were basically feeding her with uh, intravenous feeding her because she couldn't eat. So we went to Florida, and they, they made arrangements with the nurse to come every night at like uh, 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, and they would hook her up with intravenous feeding, and she would be in bed. And, and about the third night we were there, Marsha complained to me. She said, you know, so I'm getting, I throw up and get nauseous just from this, like 10 minutes after they hooked me up. I said, just from the intravenous feeding? She goes, yeah. So uh, I mentioned that to the nurse. So 
we're having a conversation in the bedroom where Marsha's on the bed. She goes, you have to, to get her to a hospital. Marsha says from the bed, not here. I think she knew that once she went to the hospital, she wasn't coming out. At least she didn't think she would. So the nurse said, then you got to get her home. She just said, this is really not good. I said, okay. So I did I mean, I had, now I had all this. The families are all there. The kids are all there. I mean, I wasn't exactly sure how to deal with all of this, who to tell what, what to tell them. And so Marsha's laying in the bed and I am on the floor with, with the nurse leaves sitting on the floor with my arms on the bed so that my face is like even with hers. Just just being there with her, holding her hand. And she, for the first time, she sits up and she looks at me and she says, do you think I'm going to get better? And I said, well, we promised not to lie, remember? She just shook her head. I said, I don't think you're going to get better. And she just turned and looked the other way and she went, okay, lay back. That was a really poignant moment for me. And I think for first, the only time she ever asked me. So I then uh, made some phone calls. I actually got a private plane. We had to get out of there the next day. I just knew it. We got home and uh, I took her home with an ambulance that they, they met us at the airport. I really felt if I took her to the hospital, I'd never see her in it. And uh, I called hospice. And they were wonderful. Hospice is a great organization. Highly recommended not to be afraid of it. They're not just about dying, but they are great when that is happening too. And uh, they came in, they knew just what they were doing. And the second or third day, she was clearly just laying there, a skeleton. Her face was angelic. Her body was like a skeleton. If you didn't see it, you almost couldn't believe it. And uh, her family was in the house and you know, uh, so uh, I was nervous during the middle of the day, not nervous that she was going to die, nervous that she was not comfortable. So, because I could tell she was agitated. So I called hospice. I called the nurse that was was her nurse, had been there for a couple of days, and told her what was happening. And she said, Joe, would you like me to stop by on my way home? I said, boy, would, that would be great if you would do that, please. So she came around 4 o'clock. And uh, she came to the bedroom, took her vital signs. And she said, uh, Joe, uh, I can't get her blood pressure. She has no blood pressure. And her pulse is about 150. I said, what does that mean? She goes, well, she has no blood pressure. So her heart is trying to make up the difference. It can't do that for very long. She says, I don't think she's going to make it to the night. They know what they're talking about. But she didn't. So I uh, brought Juliana and Haley in together, let them lay on bed with her. And uh, Marsha was in, in, just in some other zone. When the two girls were laying with her, she sat up and she reached over and grabbed Juliana's hand. It was like, un, like I don't know what it was, where it came from. And then laid back down again. 
Just needed, she just needed to do that. Touch her daughter, touch Haley. Uh, and then I let all of her, her mother come in, be alone with her for a bit, her sisters and brother. And then when I could tell that her breathing was changing, I wanted to be alone with her, but I didn't think it was fair to do that. They all wanted to be there too. And she probably, knowing her, would have wanted them to be there too. The family. I mean, she loved their family. So I had the mother and her brothers and sisters. They were all in the bedroom with us, and I was there holding her hand. And, uh, it is a powerful experience being with somebody at that moment that they transition out. When they take that last breath, their eyes open, which they told me that they would. And you have to close them, but that's a typical thing that they open. And then they, they take that last breath and just stops. And you're there for that. I mean, what happens? What is that? I mean, I was there like, I didn't know what it was. I mean, it was just otherworldly. So I gave everybody, I told everybody, you know, just everybody please just say your goodbye and quickly because I want to be alone here. And they did. They were there. Again, I was on the floor and next to her just spoke to her and I said, Marsha, you look so beautiful. I couldn't believe it. Uh, but she was gone. I just couldn't believe that she wasn't in her body. It was the strangest thing. It was so sad that I would never talk to her and be with her. And, and I had no idea where she was, if she was, what she was. I mean, there are so many wonderful images that people have said, but I don't know. So I didn't know. You just, but I was right there when it happened. Um, and again, when as time passed, you know, and I reflected on it, and I allowed myself to open to that experience in my in my sitting practice, I was so grateful to have the practice. And had, had had the opportunity to develop it over a long period of time. Because these are powerful experiences. And to let myself approach these experiences with an openness to feel them completely, but not to let them capture me and torture me. So even now, that they move me to tears when I when I reflect on them. I think that that's that's okay. It's, it, I'm glad that I can still touch Feel. them. Yeah, that I can still touch them. It's fascinating but, because I've heard this story from you aloud so many times, and I've read about it in your book, which I want to talk about. But it still moves me as well as if I'm hearing it for the first time again. And it's just a, such a powerful story, and it's so clear how much you loved and love Marsha here with her here, you know, years ago. And even now that there's just such a deep passion for one another and your love for her was so deep. Your book that you wrote a few years ago that we worked on together. Yes. How did that come to be? Well, I was writing a letter to my wife in the last day or so that, that I could tell she was passing. 
And uh, I'm not sure why I was doing it, whether I was going to try to read it to her, even though she was not conscious or semi-conscious, or whether I was just doing it to like as a catharsis for myself. And then when she passed away, the you know the funeral was going to be in a couple of days. And of course, it was up to me, like what the funeral service was going to be. I wanted to be respectful of the family; they're Catholic, and I had no problem with it being a, a Catholic mass and all of that. That there was no reason for me to like impose, you know, something else on it. But I didn't want it to be one of those things where, you know, three different nieces and nephews each got up there to to speak a couple things, and this person said that, and the girlfriend said that. I wanted it to be something more special than that. I thought, you know what? I'm going to finish this letter. And um, I think I can read it and get through it without, you know, some emotional breakdown in front of everybody, but still make it work. And so I finished the letter. Um, it was long. The letter was not just a, you know, like a one one page. And I decided that that was going to be the homily and the only homily. I didn't want the priest who didn't, hurt, didn't know her that well to like try to give some rendition based, based on his notes from talking to the family the night before. I didn't want that. So um, the, the mass started. I was sitting there. Came the time for me to do it. I was still was very, very, very emotional. And as I got up, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to read this thing without having a breakdown. And I didn't want to do that. And as I started to walk across the, um, the altar toward the, the, you know, where you, the microphone was and all, all of a sudden I was just filled with this sense of, like, balance and equanimity. Joe, you're going to do this for Moksha. Not not for Joe, but for Marsha. I felt balanced. Like, this is a, a, an opportunity to honor her, and you're going to read this. So I read it. And um, people afterwards came up and were very moved by the letter and uh, said very complimentary things about it. And could they, people sort of saying, could I get a copy of the letter? And even weeks later, I heard people weren't even there. Joe, oh, we read at the funeral, you know, but, and I thought, well, maybe I should put it into, into something and give it to people in a nice way. And that was how I started to think about, well, maybe I should write a story around it. And that's when I got to you. What happens, I called my friend Charles Koppelman in New York City and asked him, because he's in the entertainment world, who would you talk to if you wanted to put a little book together? He said, my daughter-in-law, Amy Koppelman, has written several books. I knew her, but I didn't know her well, so I called her. She said, well, I don't really do that sort of thing. I got to you. And you were wonderful and helped me out, and we got, we got the thing together. Thank you. And, yeah, uh, that was an amazing experience. And it was amazing to work with you to get that book out into the world. It's available on Amazon. It's called A Letter to My Wife, so you can check it out there. And you can read the letter that he wrote for the funeral, as well as the full story, things that were mentioned today on the podcast, um, and learn a bit more about his meditation practice and more about what it is that was valuable to have this meditation practice through his own brain tumor, through his dealing as a caregiver, and then after Marsha passed, 
And I know that you're doing some amazing work with Roswell Park. You were raving about them at the beginning of this conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about Roswell and what they're doing these days? Yes. Um, You can't pick up a magazine or a newspaper nowadays and not read about the word mindfulness. So mindfulness practice has become, you know, a very mainstream subject of conversation. There's a lot of science now that that supports it um, in the world of uh, self-healing and so on. Uh, And if you go on the website for any major cancer institute, they will have mindfulness plastered all over it and have developed a very robust mindfulness division within their wellness program. Uh, Roswell is is noted as being one of the top cancer institutes, and they created a wellness program and they wanted to have a mindfulness division, but they know anything about mindfulness and they didn't have anybody that they could, that they knew in Buffalo that, that could teach it or do it. So that's something they knew about my book though. And so they called me and we talked about it. And so I've been working with them to help develop a mindfulness program within their wellness program at Roswell. And, um, I'm working, I've also been invited by their pastoral, division in Roswell this coming next next weekend I will be going down to the Chautauqua Institute and doing uh, mindfulness training for their pastoral group on Saturday they have a, their annual retreat uh, and I just feel more and more I feel very confident in my practice from the conversation as we've had here um, and I feel that I'm at a point in my life and a point in my practice where I can share my experience and I've talked with some of the teachers that I've had in, in the course of the last 40 years or so. And the concern in the mindfulness world is that you know, anybody can read a book. And then, and if you're a good speaker, sit in front of a group of people and say, close your eyes, follow your breath. You know, if thoughts come, let them go. I mean, that's the, those are simple instructions. The real issue is when someone raises their hand and said, well, you know, I've been sitting now for three weeks, like you said, and this is what happens in my sitting practice. If you, if, if you don't have the experience yourself, the answer you give could, could set this, unfor- this, this meditator who is um, earnest and, and you know, in a, in a completely wrong path. As an example, I was listening to a lecture the other day at Roswell, the speaker, one of the speakers they brought in. And she was saying as part of her talk that the practice of mindfulness, you know, you focus on your breath and then you find yourself falling off with the thought and you come back to the breath. And the real practice is coming back to the breath, not staying on the breath. And that's true. And I would have, I used that coming back to the breath is the practice. That's all she said, though. But that's not. There's something else there. It's coming back to the breath non-judgmentally with love and compassion for yourself. Because if you come back to the breath and in that instant you're saying to yourself, you're not very good at this. You just fell off your breath again, you dummy. And you come back. That's not cultivating compassion and love and loving kindness. This is a small example of how somebody can talk to people, and, and people heard that. And I said, oh, should I say something like right here in front of all these people and, and then be accused of like, well, who are you to like, you know. Critique, So yeah. I didn't, but, I'm, I was, but when they came to me for the meditation portion, 
the private, I said, I just want to add something, you know, so that those of you interested in meditation understand that it's, it's the cultivation of wisdom. Yes, seeing that things are impermanent, but it's the cultivation of compassion as the same time. They're not separate. But that's an example of someone who knows what they're talking about, but hasn't done it. And so I've been doing it for a long time. And while I never, I never, I tell people I'm not a teacher and I don't want to tell people I'm a teacher. I'm a mechanic. (laughs) So for people that are listening that may not have a meditation practice and may not know where to even begin with exploring that, what would you say the first step is? Well, I think the very first step is to get to read. John Kabat-Zinn is is an excellent source. Joseph Goldstein is a great author on mindfulness meditation. Sharon Salisbury is a great author. Jack Kornfield is a great author. Read and get a little context and foundation, a little intellectual context and foundation for what the practice is and what it's about and why you might be doing it. And in those books, you'll also get some of the technique to do it that you can begin to practice as well. I really think that if, if people are interested in developing a serious meditation practice, they should consider going on a retreat. And where I went has become, you know, 40 years ago, is still there, the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts. It has turned into one of the most beautiful meditation centers in the world. It is internationally recognized as such. Um, they're on the internet, Insight Meditation Center. That's one place. There's a, uh, they have a sister uh, center in California called Spirit Rock. Uh, that's up near San Francisco, Marin County, I believe. Uh, and there are others. But, you know, you, you have med- mindfulness practice, being in the moment, it's not something you can read about and talk about and then think you're doing it. You have to do it. You have to sit on the cushion or on a chair or whatever and do it. Because you, it's not something you can just think about intellectually and, and then say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm into meditation. Um, and the other thing is you have to have a chat with yourself. I can't tell you how many people say, I want to meditate. And I tell them, I don't think you do. Well, what do you mean? I said, I think you want to want to meditate. Because if you wanted to meditate, you would be meditating. Right. And you have to be honest with yourself and decide, where am I? Do I really want to meditate? If I do, then I'm going to commit. I'm going to do it every day for 10 minutes. I'll do it for one month. That's all. Give myself a month and see if I like it. But if you don't do that, you're going to wander off. You're not going to get through the first week. I mean, whatever. Right. The you, consistency is such a huge part of meditation. Yeah. You have to, you have to, to find out if you like it. First of all, don't bite off more than you can shoot. Don't say, okay, I'm going to sit a half an hour. That's not a good way to start. Start off with 10 or 20 minutes and do that every day for 15 days and then try 25 minutes. I mean, it's a long time to sit following your breath and then coming back the breath, whatever. You know, read the instructions, read some beautiful, Pima, P-E-M-A, children. See, she is a wonderful Buddha, or a Tibetan Buddhist nun. Her books are fantastic. We'll include each of these books that Joe has referenced in the show notes 
so you can check them out. Joe, I thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. As always, you are so well-spoken and I so appreciate your honesty and vulnerability as you share what you've gone through and how your meditation practice has sort of been the thread amongst everything that you've gone through. Um, where can people find you, learn more about you, and connect with you? Well, I am uh, on the uh, on Facebook, uh, Joseph DiNardo. That's all. Just search me on Facebook, Joseph DiNardo. And I'm also on joe-dinardo.com. Awesome. Uh, Thank you, Joe. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.